This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. ABC, how are you doing today? Good, good, good. Uh, following a theme going back many months now, uh, this morning's preach is going to be very simple and straightforward. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> if you're thick, you won't get any of this. <laughs> now... Looking through this dim half-life, I, I kind of believe that you are quite a righteous bunch of people. So you probably don't know this, but uh, in many pubs there used to be a sign-up saying, talking about religion and politics is forbidden. Well, this morning we're going to break both those taboos. We're going to talk about religion, perhaps you shouldn't be surprised. We're going to talk about politics, and later on we're going to look at how to build a weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> so... If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 2, and I'm reading from verses 13 to 17. Actually, it's not chapter 2. Now the Passover was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting there. And having made a whip out of rope, he drove them out of the temple with the animals, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and scattered their money. Then he said to those selling the doves, Take these things away from here. My father's house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then his disciples remembered what scripture said as it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. This morning's title of the word is called The Radical Christian. And the title is actually taken from a very seminal book by Arthur Wallace called The Radical Christian. And this book was written in 1982. And Arthur Wallace, who was very influential on the restoration movement, had a complaint to make about the church in the 60s and the 70s and the early 80s. Let me just read you this little quote from his book. Far too many people are slipping into the kingdom without coming through the narrow gate of repentance. Little wonder so many are sickly babes instead of robust disciples. Little wonder that so many never seem to get beyond the stage of needing counselling, deliverance or emotional healing. No wonder so many always have to be carried and never reach the place where they begin, can begin to carry others. This is not an indictment of weak believers, so much as an indictment of those who preach a deficient gospel and press people into a premature commitment to Christ before the Holy Spirit has done a thorough work of conviction. Something vital is lost when we pick the fruit before it is ripe. If you've ever had a fruit tree, you know don't pick the fruit before it's ripe. If you do, you damage the fruit. Not only that, because the fruit isn't ripe, it's useless until it ripens. Let me just show you the way in which you can pick fruit before it's ripe in the church. It's really simple. You just close your eyes, lower your heads, lower the lights, have some soft music on the organ, and then just say, if there's anyone here who wants to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, just put your hands up. Nobody's looking. That's what a teacher does when they're trying to find out which kid in class broke the window in the toilet block, okay? It's a way of saying to people, you should be ashamed of becoming a Christian. It is the wrong way to do it. When babies are born prematurely, what happens? They have to be put in incubators. Some of them suffer lifelong health problems. Some of them die. There are Christians who have been 30 years in the faith. They're still in an incubator because they came into the church in that silly way. If you've ever grown fruit, you know 
when the fruit is ripe, you know the tree. All you have to do is just reach up and touch it and it comes away in your hand. If you're going to lead somebody to the Lord, right, you've got to have a relationship with that person. You've got to know them. You have debate and discuss the faith. And there comes a point where you realize, do you know what, they're close. And all it takes is a word. Have you considered becoming a Christian? And they just fall into the faith. Sometimes the fruit just falls from the tree without anyone touching it. That's what happened to me. I walked into a church in 1975 in the middle of a gospel service. I knelt down in the middle of the church. I knew nobody in the church. I stopped the meeting. The preacher had to ask me what I wanted. I said, I want to become a Christian. And he came down and he prayed with me and I came into the kingdom. And that church never forgave me for bringing salvation into their gospel service. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> My in-laws also fell out the tree and then started throwing bananas at each other. But that's another story which we won't go there. The radical Christian is a person who has been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in this country at the moment, we have an anti-radicalization program being initiated by the government. And the bizarre thing is it's aimed at Islam and Muslims, but Christians have been caught up in it as well. Anglican churches, Anglican schools have been questioned as to whether they're radicalizing their people. I believe, I found out yesterday, I believe that even this church has received some communication from the government saying that at any moment an inspector could come and check up on our Sunday school just to see if we're radicalizing our kids. Well, to the chimps and the clowns that govern this country, let me just tell you this. The word radical means to go to the root. The root of Islam is violence. Muhammad was a warlord. He killed people. He beheaded people. He led armies. His followers were warlords. They killed and slaughtered each other like sheep. When you radicalize a Muslim, you create a man of violence. You go to the root of the faith. Our faith is about love and forgiveness and reconciliation and tolerance. When you radicalize a Christian, you end up with a better citizen, a better person, a nicer person, somebody who's going to do more good than bad. But the government doesn't get it because they're clowns. So this morning, we're going to look at three separate things. We're going to look at the origins of the radical church, something Arthur Wallace didn't go into, but it is quite important for this topic. Then we're going to look at how to radicalize Christians, okay? Because it's something we want to do. And then finally, we're going to look at how not to radicalize the church, okay? We're going to look at how not to do it, just in case you're tempted to go down that route. Okay then, where does the radical church come from? The Reformation, men like Calvin and Luther, they were as radical as you can get. But it's interesting, the radical church in Britain actually began with the Anglican church. If you go on the internet, you can see the 39 articles there of the Anglican church. They were written in 1570. And do you know what? They're wonderful. Yeah. It's the birth of the radical church in Britain. As nonconformists, there's probably only two things we disagree with there. After a beautiful summary of baptism, it says that it's okay to baptize kids, which we don't agree with. And then it says, you know, if uh, a magistrate asks you to swear an oath on the Bible, you should do it. Whereas, by and large, nonconformists tend to affirm instead. And if you're a Welsh speaker here this morning, the only reason you speak Welsh is because of Article 24 in the 39 Articles, which says this. It is a thing plainly repugnant to the word of God and the custom of the early church to preach or pray in the church in a language not understood by the people. Now that was aimed at getting Latin out of the church in England. But 90% of the people in Wales spoke Welsh. 
And Elizabeth I, because she was of Welsh descent, out of her own pocket, she paid for the Bible to be translated into Welsh by Bishop Morgan, which meant that every minister and every bishop in Wales had to speak Welsh. That's the only reason the language survived into the 21st century. Oddly enough, the opposite happened in Ireland. They forced the English Bible on them. They hung to their Catholicism for that reason. And, of course, the Gaelic language has virtually died out. Unfortunately, the radical Anglican Church did not last long. And, in fact, um, I'm just going to read you a little review of a book by a chap called Richard Holloway that was recently written. The review is by Christopher Hart, and it gives you a kind of an insight into where the Anglican Church is today. Richard Holloway is that perennially entertaining figure in our national landscape, the trendy left-wing bishop who doesn't believe in God. The BBC loves him, of course. He's safe on Radio 4, thought for the day, and won't put listeners off their breakfast with any distasteful talk of sin and death and redemption. In 2000, he named the gay rights campaigner Peter Thatchell as one of the five most Christ-like figures in the modern world. The final chapter is entitled, with eager hopefulness, The End of Religion. Secular spirituality finds meaning and beauty in this life. It is the only life we'll ever have. Another faith statement there, then, to end this bland, vain, arrogant, and unenlightening book. I don't know why an atheist wants to become a minister in a church, and I had no idea why a church would want to promote an atheist to become bishop. But there you go, the Anglicans lost it. And they lost it a long time ago. And that's where nonconformism comes into being. The nonconformists, whether they're Presbyterians or Baptists or Methodists, decided not to conform to the hypocrisy of the Anglican Church in the 17th and the 18th century. And it is interesting, because what happened in Wales then was really, really unique. In Wales... Something special happened in the 18th century. There was an old idea that goes all the way back to Gildas, writing in 5450 AD. And in the ruin of Britain, he wrote these words, and they were picked up in the 18th century by Welsh nonconformists. This is what he says, writing about 1,500 years ago, talking about what had happened in Britain in the previous 50 years. After this, sometimes our countrymen, sometimes the enemy, won the field, to the end that our Lord might in this land try after his accustomed manner these his Israelites, whether they loved him or not, until the year of the battle of Baden Hill, when took place also the last almost, though not the least, slaughter of our cruel foes, which was, I am sure, 44 years and one month after the landing of the Saxons, and also the time of my own nativity, and neither to this day are the cities of our country inhabited as before, but being forsaken and overthrown, still lie desolate. Our foreign wars having ceased, but our civil troubles still remaining. He was writing in what is now Lantwit Major, where the oldest college in Britain was based. They took that theme up in the 18th century. The idea that Wales was the new Israel and that the Welsh were the new Israelites. Wales being all that was left of the Britain that Gildas remembers from the 6th century. And what came into being was a radical religion. And it resulted in a series of revivals. 1735, 1859, 1871, 1904. And this new conception of a radical church required new kinds of preaching. You've got people like Thomas Charles, Daniel Rowlands, David Davis, Evan Roberts, Joseph Jenkins, Mary Jones, a woman. They were allowing women to preach. And it also required a new type of church building. 
Up until then, all the churches were either the 6th century longhouse-type church that you see in Wales, which was basically a farmhouse with a barn, maybe with a tower on the end. Churches like Munt and Partishlow in Gwent uh, are based on that design. Or you had the cruciform church that the, Romans, the Normans brought in, which was basically on the shape of a cross. But these guys decided to do something different. They went back to the Old Testament. They went to the book of Ezekiel, and they decided to rebuild the temple. Every chapel in Wales, whether it's Baptist, Methodist, Independent, every single one of them is square for one simple reason. They're all based on the temple in Jerusalem. Whether they're small or large, the relationship between the walls is always the same. It's 80 foot by 25 foot by 40 foot. They were recreating the Holy of Holies. When you go into those old chapels, the first thing you go into is the area where you normally leave your coats. That's the outer court. Then you go into the main part of the church. It's the Holy of Holies. They normally have a three-sided gallery around the top so that everybody can get close to the center of the action. It's all about the word of God being spoken by the preacher at the front. They were calling themselves the new Jews. They were calling their country the new Israel. And they believed that God was speaking to them through men and women. And it was transforming their lives. And the people who built those churches, they were special people themselves. You've got people like John Humphrey in Morrison, Thomas Thomas in Clandor, George Morgan in Carmarthen. They were called Pensiers in Welsh, which today means architect, but really it means head carpenter. It's virtually the same term that we use to describe Jesus. In the Bible, he's called a tecton. It's where you get the word technician from. It means a builder, normally translated as carpenter, but it really means a builder. These people were, in the truest sense of the word, apostles. They were the architects of a new church building for a new interpretation of the faith. And it's extraordinary to think that in 50 years, 5,000 chapels were built in Wales. More churches than the rest of the country put together. A new chapel was built in Wales every eight days. It was that radical. And I remember when I did the, church, the uh, chapel survey in Midglamorgan, in 78 and 79, before going to university. I remember surveying all those chapels across Midglamorgan. And I remember one in particular, Nodva in Triorki. It was magnificent. Double-glazed windows. It had a water-driven turbine. It seated 2,000 people. The Sunday school had 1,000 little chairs in it. And at the time I visited it, only one person was attending. There was a deacon who opened the door to us and played the organ while we went around measuring the place. In 1986, it burned to the ground. Now it's a car park. Those people didn't just believe in a radical religion. They also believed in radical politics. For one very simple reason. They were suffering. These were men who would go to work in the mines, taking their children with them. You would go on a Monday morning at 7 o'clock, you'd have your six-year-old daughter in one hand, your eight-year-old son in the other, and you would spend six days working underground. So when on Sunday they met together, you can believe me, they were praying for change in their lives. They were praying for blessing. They were praying that they might all be alive the following week. And when you look at the death tolls in the mines, it's unbelievable. Cinder Pit disaster, Blenavon, 1838. 14 people died. Three of them, Elizabeth Harvard, age 9. William Evans, age 10. John Morris, age 8. The youngest victim I could find of any pit disaster in South Wales, Cumgrachmine, 1820. Elizabeth Pendry, age 6. These were kids who were being killed by coal. And so they wanted to change society. 
and they began founding political organisations. In Wales in particular, Chartism took off in a big way. It was actually originally in Carmarthen, 1838, the first Chartist movement. It was in my neck of the woods, in Gwent, where in 1839, 10,000 Chartists marked on Newport. And what were they asking for? The right to vote. Only 2% of the population then could vote. They just wanted to vote. And when they got to Newport, they were met by the militia. 22 of them were shot dead. 1,000 were injured. The ringleaders were arrested. They were sentenced in uh, Monmouth Crown Court to be hand-drawn and quartered. The first time that sentence had ever been imposed, it was on a Welshman, brother of the last Prince of Wales, and he was hand-drawn and quartered. The same sentence, and the last time it was issued, 1840, on Robert Frost, didn't happen. He was sent to Australia instead. But you do get a feeling that somebody in this country really doesn't like us. Anyway... The Chartist movement failed. But in the end, out of it came the trade union movement and the Labour Party. And then something went seriously wrong. Look at the Labour Party now. What has happened to that party? Its birth was in the radical church movement, particularly in Wales. First Labour MP was in Wales. Tony Benn used to say the Labour Party owed more to Methodism than it did to Marx. He was absolutely spot right. But look at the last bunch of leaders of the Labour Party. My goodness. First of all, you've got bloody Blair. Took us to war against a nation that had never threatened us. 175,000 people die as a result. Then you had bonkers Brown. What was wrong with that man? When he was asked who his favourite fictional character was, he said Heathcliff. Heathcliff, the madman of the moors who digs up his lost love, Cathy, so he can kiss her one last time. Seriously? You want that guy as a leader? Then came Idiot Ed, enough said. And now we've got Captain Chaos, Corbin the Clown. My goodness, how the mighty have fallen. The only problem is it's no longer funny. The radical church in Wales was always very pro-Jewish. And it was very pro-Israel. In fact, the only reason Israel came into being in 1948 is because 30 years previously, a man who was prime minister happened to have been brought up in the radical church and knew that God wanted the re-establishment of the state of Israel. His name was Lloyd George. It was the Labour government in the 1940s who made sure that Israel could be re-established by referring the matter to the UN. Let me just read you this that I read two weeks ago in the Telegraph. Jewish MPs, 20,000 abuse messages. A Jewish MP who criticised Jeremy Corbyn has revealed that she has received more than 20,000 instances of abuse in just 12 hours. Smith, the MP for Stoke-on-Trent, has reportedly been given special protection after the police, by the police after receiving a death threat on Facebook. The threat was issued in July after the MP left a conference on Labour's report into anti-Semitism in tears after being accused by an activist of colluding with the right-wing press. Ms Smith accused Mr Corbyn of a catastrophic failure of leadership and said Labour cannot be a safe space for British Jews. Mr Corbyn's office said... No abuse is carried out in Jeremy's name. How come the Labour Party has become anti-Semitic when it began as a pro-Jewish organisation? It's simple. The Labour Party used to be socialist. Now it's controlled by communists. And communism has always been an anti-human, anti-God, anti-Jewish ideology. It's sad. It's tragic. Who knows what the consequences will be? But the truth is, radical politics in this country died a long time before Jeremy Corbyn. I'll give you the exact day, in fact. 21st of October, 1966, 
when a million tons of coal came down the hill and killed 116 kids in Pantglass Primary School. It was a nationalised industry that killed them. It wasn't a private business. It was the Labour government that made the parents pay for the removal of the coal. It wasn't the Tories. And we only found out in 1997 when the papers were released 